the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Zneimer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. U.S. presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders is calling for cheaper insulin for American diabetics. And to make the point, he joined the latest American insulin caravan on a trip to Windsor, Ontario to buy supplies. On this side of the border, insulin is cheap and easy to buy without a prescription, while Americans are charged 10 times more for this potentially life-saving drug. But as a result of Americans buying insulin in Canada, 15 organizations representing patients and practitioners have sent a letter to the federal health minister warning increased American demand for cheaper insulin and other drugs could lead to shortages here. Joining Libby Snymer to discuss, pharmacist Dean Miller, Seema Nagpal, Vice President, Science and Policy at Diabetes Canada, and Joelle Walker, Vice President and Public Affairs at the Canadian Pharmacists Association. One of the big challenges that we've had in Canada for many years now is sort of a growth and increase in drug shortages. And I think that's what underlies a lot of our concern with the potential for legislation that is passing in the United States that would allow for importation. The potential for, you know, a country that's 10 times our size to, to be kind of using our drug supply here in Canada um, is a big concern for, for us as, um, you, know, you know, representing health professions and, and, and our patients. So that, that's a really big challenge, and, and drug shortages are not new to Canada. Um, and in a survey we did in 2018 at the end of the year, um, we were quite surprised to find that as many as one in four Canadians has actually experienced a drug shortage, either personally or a family member. So those, you know, those statistics were a little higher than what we were expecting in terms of uh, how many Canadians are faced by this. And so the potential for um, that legislation to exacerbate shortages in Canada is of real concern for us. And Seema Nagpal, what's your view on this? It really does, um, you know, pull on your heartstrings, and it's it's really a, a dire situation for people when they can't access insulin. Um, as you know, people living with uh, type one diabetes require insulin in order to live. It's it's not a choice. It's not a preferred treatment. They they must have insulin in order to live. Um, so I, I absolutely sympathize and understand um, the desire and, and the desperation that people feel um, to to get access insulin that's affordable and, and um, uh, available to them uh, so that uh, I just I guess to highlight that uh, there's a lot of compassion and understanding for what these, um, these people living with diabetes and their families are, are doing by coming to Canada to get access um, but of course the issue as Joelle highlighted is that uh, the Canadian drug supply um, can't sustain Americans living with diabetes as well so we uh, are concerned that that might uh, compromise care here in Canada, and that's why um, we raised this issue of potential drug shortages uh, to the Minister of Health, and uh, we are in ongoing conversations with uh, the Minister of Health and the Department to make sure that um, that they're able to, to monitor the situation and to react as needed. I'd like to bring in Dean Miller, who is a pharmacist. What's your view of this? Uh, you know, you deal with the patients on the ground in your pharmacy. I'm sure you dispense a lot of insulin. Well, yeah, I mean, insulin is, is pretty much as commonplace as, uh, you know, somebody having a glass of water around a pharmacy. You know, anytime uh, a shortage or something or a potential shortage um, 
uh, we're we're concerned about it because uh, you know it, you know we've we've seen probably in the last ten years with a lot of the pricing controls that have gone in, uh, manufacturers are just um, they're just not manufacturing the way they used to. So you know as much as in the past you know we've never seen any issues with insulin. Pharmacists are, are you know that's one of the roles that we play is to ensure that the medication is there for our patients. Um, you know it, it can be a little scary because. Uh, you know, if this ends up being like the internet pharmacy phenomena of the early uh, 2000s, um, you know, it, it could develop into some. What would you like to leave us with, Seema Nagpal? Uh, accessing insulin is not something that should be difficult or or a barrier. There shouldn't be any barriers. It's life-sustaining therapy for these people. And and uh, while we have a lot of work to do at home, our heart goes out to those people living with diabetes in the U.S. who um, who can't get access to the insulin that they need. Okay, and Joelle? I'd say action is needed now. So, you know, in terms of what the minister could do and others, I think the, the what's really what the message we'd like to sort of leave behind is that we don't want to be sort of caught at the 11th hour trying to figure out what to do once this passes and uh, or if and when it passes and we're, um, you know, we're starting to see shifts in, in, in purchasing. So, you know, I think we want to be preventative as well and make sure that we have a plan in place to, to respond to things as they happen and to, to come up with something that's going to be comprehensive and support patients, be um, you know, uh, help prevent drug shortages to happen in the, in the first place, and then also provide tools for patients and healthcare providers when those shortages happen to make sure that they're getting a good experience and, and continuing the, the level of care they've come to, uh, to know and expect from uh, Canadian pharmacists and from Canadian healthcare providers. Indeed. The patient uh, and a diabetic patient at that has that great relationship with a uh, with a pharmacist. We get medication every day of the week, pretty much here in pharmacy across Canada. It's a luxury. Just keep uh, talking to your pharmacist about this if it looks like it's going someplace. So. Pharmacist Dean Miller, Joelle Walker, Vice President at the Canadian Pharmacists Association, and Seema Nagpal, VP of Science and Policy at Diabetes Canada. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Now we turn to the subject of Canadians going south and the prospect of much higher costs for travel medical insurance because of a decision by the Ford PCs at Queen's Park. Earlier this year, Health Minister Christine Elliott announced the end of Ontario's coverage for out-of-country medical costs. The rationale is that it only covered a maximum of $400 a day which won't buy very much in the U.S. health system and was extremely costly to administer. Federal Health Minister Jeanette Petipa-Taylor is warning this decision could jeopardize access to necessary medical care, something which is required under the Canada Health Act and would also inevitably lead to higher premiums for Ontario travellers. Libby spoke about the issue with Keith Martin, co-executive director at the Canadian Association of Financial Institutions in Insurance, and NDP MPP Marit Stiles. Well, you know, I think for a lot of people, it was um, a it was assurance that there would be at least some coverage available uh, should they find themselves out of the country for family or other reasons. But I think where it really is going to hit people hard, and we've even had the Minister of Health in Ontario acknowledge this and yet do nothing about it so far, is with people who have existing conditions, like, for example, folks who need dialysis. Even though what was offered was just a, a drop in the bucket, it was at least it was at least some 
coverage uh, to for folks who actually will have difficulty getting insurance coverage um, when they leave, uh, even for, for, you know, very important reasons, like they have to get out of the country for work or for, for, for family travel. So it was a, an assurance that I think a lot of people counted on. And so I think that the government making this change, and I know we talked about it when they first, uh, when they first announced this a few months ago, I think it's left a lot of people feeling uncertain. And I, and I do agree. I mean, one of the concerns that people have is that this will, we will, we may see insurance premiums hiked up. Keith Martin, will this inevitably lead to higher premiums for travel medical? It will probably lead to higher premiums, but we do need to keep in mind that the amount that uh, was covered by the OHIP coverage was so low at $400 a day that I I don't think that that it will be dramatic. I I think the more fundamental issue is the speed with which this is being implemented. It doesn't give consumers the opportunity to uh, digest this, to start thinking about options and In general, we are aware in our association that a very significant number of Canadians travel without medical uh, travel insurance or with insufficient medical travel insurance. And if the government is going to take this action, it should do so um, over a longer time period. We'd suggest at least a year beyond the 1st October 2019 current timeline. And they should have a robust communication plan to let Ontarians know the risks of traveling without travel insurance. It can be catastrophic for a family uh, if they don't have travel medical insurance and uh, they, they fall sick or get injured. In fact, Libby, according to the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medical Services, the average cost of a three-day hospital stay in the United States is approximately $30,000, and it's much more if it's a serious problem. So number one priority from my perspective for the government is to communicate to to Ontarians the risks of traveling without purchasing insurance. Merritt Stiles, I mean, this sounds like a lot of other things that this government has done really, really, really quickly. And then, you know, they often have to backtrack. We're we're just hearing about changes to their autism file today. Uh, You know, how do you see it in in that context? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen, uh, and I think autism program is a very good example. I mean, a really devastating example of what happens when government makes, you know, rash decisions um, with the excuse of saving money without really thinking this through. I mean, our leader, Andrew Horvath, back in May, um, early on in this, in this conversation about the, the cuts to the OHIP out of country, um, said, you know, pointed out to the Minister of Health in the legislature that, that this was going to hit some patients, particularly, and she used the example of dialysis treatment, um, more, worse than others. And what would the minister do about it? And the minister said, actually, in the House, that she was committed to, to looking at that issue and doing something about it. And here we are, months later, and, and no solution. And, you know, if you, what we've seen, I think, is a government that is making, again, really rash decisions without, you know, without proper consultation. It's one thing to hold, you know, to send out a survey and say you've, you know, talked to a whole lot of people in a short period of time. But, you know, we, we expect you to talk to the people who really know this area, you know, like the folks who, um, who are on the phone today or others, you know, who, ha- who actually really understand what the impact will be and make sure you don't make mistakes that are going to leave people out in the cold or in the case of all of those poor families um, with children who have autism, you know, fighting for their lives for the last few months and then finally getting them to reverse it. And we still don't know uh, what that final program will look like. Keith Martin, what would you like to leave us with? Policies need to be implemented uh, over a sufficient period of time that, uh, 
that, that people can understand what the implications are and prepare. And um, communication as well is absolutely critical, as I've, I've mentioned several times. And I, I hope the government will reconsider both its timelines and uh, make a commitment to communicating this to consumers uh, really effectively. We don't want to see people traveling without proper coverage and facing some of these dire consequences. Keith Martin, co-executive director at the Canadian Association of Financial Institutions in Insurance and NDP MPP Marit Stiles. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. The Ford PCs retreated from their controversial autism strategy this past week after facing months of protests from angry parents of children with special needs. This is the recent in a list of walkbacks the Tories had earlier announced. How damaging is this strategy? Our Tuesday strategy panel of Ashton Arsenault, Bob Richardson, and John Capobianco addressed the issue in conversation with Libby Snymer. I've always believed that as long as you get it right, um, whether or not you have to go back on, on and fix something, is, it's, it's you know, irrelevant. I know the opposition will make hay of the fact that you know, the decision's been changed and whatnot, but the, the, the autism uh, advocacy and the families uh, have been at this for years, and, and even in Bob's uh, Liberal government, uh, previous, uh, there was challenges with respect to how they were handling the autism file. You can never get it right. Um, and especially with, with the parents who have autism, kids with autism, uh, you're never going to get it right. There's never going to be a solution in, in, in some way, shape, or form. There's never enough money. There's never enough care uh, for those. And, and, I feel, and I feel for that, for, for them. But this minister's come in and obviously uh, has rechanged it, refocused it, has, has now made it back into the needs, needs assessment, needs based uh, for individuals, which I think is, is making the advocacy the the, the uh, autism advocacy group a little bit more happier. There's mo- much more money involved, so I think they've changed the channel on this issue. And and you know, not not everyone's going to be happy, but I think they're happier. Bob, do you see this as emblematic and damaging, or is it good news that that they're recognizing their error? Well, it's good news that they're recognizing their error, but it's emblematic both both at the same time. This has been a fiasco from start to finish. Uh, they overpromised in opposition, said the government was doing a terrible job, and then came into government and then was offering less money than the previous government. And, well, and altogether had, more, just well, less. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Yeah. If you talk to the community, they don't believe that and they haven't seen that and when you take your children to a place that you've been going to and half the staff is laid off that doesn't look like more money to too many people so i think they also picked the exact wrong minister for the first year in that portfolio she's very combative and you needed somebody who is calm quiet can work with groups, figure out some solutions and move things forward. I think Todd Smith is a much better choice in that regard for uh, for this uh, for this Lucky Todd uh, file. Smith getting that but, file. But the autism advocates uh, should be giving lessons on uh, government relations to a whole variety of other groups because they are ferocious. They did uh, a very, very good job getting their point of view across. Um, they were ably aided by some people, notably Michael Cotto, uh, a member of uh, an MPP who did a good job for them and, uh, and a few others. But um, the Ford government really needs to get its act together and get away from the podium signs and the slogans and focus a little bit more on the substance of things. And if they did that, they would have less problems like this. Ashton Arsenault, your view? Yeah, I think Minister Smith delivered a messaging overhaul, which has been received well thus far. You're never going to make anybody happy on this particular file. Uh, and in the minister's own words, uh, they didn't get it right. 
I think what we have to have perspective on um, is how personal and how close to home this is for many Ontarians. Uh, clearly, many people felt that the original path taken by government wasn't in the best interest for them or their families. And you know what? That's how the system's designed to work. Uh, we all know that governments don't always get it right. And it's up to the people to inform them when they get it wrong. Uh, I think this is a case where people were heard loud and clear, uh, and the government is responding in kind. So uh, if you want leadership, this is leadership. It's not always a, a roundabout way of getting there, but eventually they got there. I think there's a number of different things that they've backed off on because they didn't do their homework. Another one is university fees. They went out and said, uh, oh, you know, we're, we're not going to let you charge fees uh, for this, that, and the next thing. Well... Once it once the issue was explained to them, all of a sudden, a variety of things were then exempted right away. I mean, do your homework. Uh, that's that's what government is about, and you should do your homework before you rush into things. And I think there's been a little bit too much of that. You didn't have that, if if I can be nonpartisan for a moment. You didn't have that with the with the Mike Harris government. Mike Harris, whether you liked him or not, had a plan. They'd gone through their plan. They had a number of people at the top who had been in government before, uh, and they executed against their plan. I didn't vote for them, but they ex- executed against their plan and got reelected because they looked like they knew what they were doing. This looks like, you know, these people fell off the set of Green Acres. So, you know, they got a lot of work that they need. They got a lot of work that they need to do. Uh, they have a number of good people in the cabinet, but uh, the premier's office particularly needs to get its act together. Bob Richardson of National Public Relations, Ashton Arsenault of Crestview Strategies, and John Capobianco at Fleischman Hillard High Road. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Have you been concerned about the Capital One data breach? We found out this past week that 6 million Canadians use Capital One credit cards linked to Costco and Hudson's Bay Company and that they had their personal information accessed by a hacker. The same happened at Desjardins just weeks ago, affecting 2.7 million people and nearly 175,000 businesses. And in 2017, a data breach at Equifax, one of the major credit reporting companies, exposed social insurance numbers and other sensitive information of about 19,000 Canadians. What do you do to protect yourself? We went to the experts. Claudio Popa, cybersecurity expert with Data Risk Canada, and Yaniv Orv. VP of Technology and Data at Zoomer Media. This one is, is very, very serious, and it's more serious for Canadians than it is for U.S. Uh, citizens. And the reason for that is we don't have the same protections here in Canada. With the, the companies are not held to the same standard. Uh, we, we do not enforce uh, cybersecurity standards as well as uh, the, the United States uh, do. And individuals don't have the same level of protection. For example, we don't have access to credit freezes, which are available to every U.S. citizen here. So it certainly is a concern, and it's one that has been top of mind for Canadians for the past month at least, because uh, these kinds of breaches don't appear to be fading away. If anything, they're increasing in number. There has been an arrest in this one, and there are previous arrests. They seem to be what I would call an inside job, somebody who had access to this information, does does that make a difference, Yaniv? 
Well, sometimes it does, but today with the abundance of tools that actually exist out there, any misconfiguration of any part of the infrastructure of an organization basically invites people to get in and take data. So it definitely helps, but it, not having it as an inside job will not deter people and it will not diminish frequency that much. The company apologized, but they said, oh, don't worry, nobody is out money because of this. Should we believe them, Claudia, when they say stuff like that? Unfortunately, that, that may have been an earlier statement of theirs. Uh, at the moment, it has come to light that uh, a lot of information was, in fact, uh, shared by this individual online, uh, if only as a mistake, if only because she made mistakes in protecting it, or perhaps she wanted others to take it. Either way, this is a situation where, uh, unfortunately, it wasn't the company itself that detected the breach, as it often is. Uh, in this case, it was a member of the public, it was a stranger who came to the company and said, hey, you know what, I happen to see some of your uh, customers' uh, data online, on a social media system, and thought you should know. That's possibly the worst kind of, uh, the worst way that a company can find out about such a damaging uh, data breach. And, and luckily, the company did react quickly and contacted the FBI. But the fact is, the information has been exposed, uh, and we don't know exactly to how many individuals, how many parties have had access to uh, what amount of it. Now, we're hearing about SIN numbers going out. That, to me, sounds very dangerous. Uh, yes, Libby. Uh, one of the scary things about an intrusion to a financial institute is that if that information has been uh, jeopardized, it's not something that can easily be changed. Normally, you need to keep monitoring uh, your status for many, many years after a breach like that, which is why it's also becoming the norm of the affected financial institutes to actually offer free uh, credit monitoring and uh, identity theft monitoring services to the affected customers. One of the main risks is that the data that was basically stolen right now can actually serve to try and get other credit cards in your name because they have your full data set. They can basically reach out to any financial institute and impersonate you, which is why identity fraud monitoring is very important in this case. And Claudio? I think it's important to realize that uh, despite uh, what the company has said, that uh, in fact uh, they were saying that don't worry, uh, credit card numbers and account uh, logins and passwords have not been compromised. Um, unfortunately, it's much worse than that. So uh, credit card numbers have not been compromised. Well, credit cards are easy to change and to cancel. The, what's impossible to change is the personal information that has been compromised and with which you can apply for a multitude of other credit cards. So it's much worse because the, the amount of the data breach um, is, uh, can, can create any number of situations where individuals' identities can be cloned. And, of course, they can apply not just for credit cards, but for loans, mortgages, and other uh, illegitimate uh, purposes, maybe even starting companies in the names of these individuals. So that's where the seriousness of this breach comes in. And it's not, in fact, from a situation, uh, as, you know, a traditional situation where credit card numbers are often uh, compromised. So we need to keep that in mind, and, and we do need, and I agree that we do need to continue monitoring for identity fraud and identity uh, uh, breaches, but also push the company to provide more than just 
that standard default one year of coverage, which is not going to be helpful at all. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Alan Branford called about the cancellation of the out-of-country travel medical insurance. We, we, have our, we have a policy, my wife and I, and it's by the year, and we're covered as in, in, on just in general, any time during the year, for up to a week at a time. You pay a, you pay a fee, and you're covered. If we're going to be longer for anywhere else or any time, then you pay more and get a longer coverage. If you can afford to go on a holiday to another country somewhere else, then you should be able to afford to have the insurance, or you sit at home and don't go. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jean in Palmerston, who is a nurse and a nursing advocate who called with her take on long-term care following the release of the report into the murders committed by former nurse Elizabeth Wetlaufer. No home should be allowed to be privatized for nursing homes because they're making a profit. Wellington County has one subsidized long-term care. It's an excellent facility because it gets funded to the tune of $7 million over and above the provincial base funding. And that all goes to the residents because they're not making a profit. These homes, they take their provincial funding. They pay for what they need for the patients. I, my father died in crescent care. My stepmother also died in crescent care. I had times my father was in the locked unit, which was inappropriately locked. When I worked in that home on the floor, we counted the time we had from supper time to getting people to bed. We had five minutes per resident. And that allowed us no time to go back to do second wet checks. So on night shift, when you arrived, those patients were all, the ones that were in Cotton were all soaking wet. The care is substandard. The Ministry of Health needs to step up to the plate and be what they call themselves, Minister of Health and Long-Term Care, and they need to take care of these people. These people created this country for us, and they're getting substandard care. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at FightBackLibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer. <laughs> 